I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about building culture and features Michelle Falcon, international keynote speaker, hospitality entrepreneur, and author of People First Culture, and Paddy McCord, former chief talent officer at Netflix and author of Powerful. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. I'm not sure you're going to get a podcast with three leaders who believe in people first cultures more than the three we've got on the line today. So live from California, we've got Patty McCord. Patty, how are you doing? I'm doing great. If you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years, Patty uh, spent a decade and a half with Netflix. She's the author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Uh, go pick that up. In studio, we've got Michelle Falcon. Michelle, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Pumped for this. Absolutely. Me too. Michelle's a, an entrepreneur. He's the author of People First Culture, Building, Build a Lasting Company by Shifting Your Focus from Profits to People. And if you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years, I'm Cody Royal. I'm the author of Where Others Won't, Taking People Innovation from the Locker Room into the Boardroom. So we've got technology, we've got uh, restaurants and hospitality, and we've got sports all in the room, all talking about a common goal, which is how to put our people at the center of our organizations. Um, I'm going to start with you, Patty. Uh, we all kind of released our books around the same time. And I, I love asking this, and I've asked it of you know Adam Grant and Neil Pasricia and Whitney Johnson. Your book, Powerful, once you released it out, out into the market, what has surprised you that people have latched onto? Because I, I experienced this, the things that I liked about my book, other people didn't. And I've kind of got this idea in my head of, you know, Malcolm Gladwell sitting there going, I don't think the 10,000 hours thing was, you know, the strongest part of my book. So I'd be interested from you, <laughs> you you've, you've had a year now. What has surprised uh-huh. you that the audience has latched onto? There's two things. One of them is the audience itself, but I'll start with what they've latched onto. They've latched onto uh, candor and honesty, like just they go right there. And they always call it ra- radical candor candor and they're always um afraid of it right you know Mm -hmm. that's easy for you to say that you can just talk straightforwardly to people but it's the thing i often have to explain most of and give examples of the audience itself thing that surprised me was when i first left netflix and i started doing talks the audience that hated me the most was hr Right. I I was so I was so the antithesis of a good HR person that I would speak and half the audience. You know, I spoke once in an HR forum and and people walked out on me and and but the book had I guess I just had to wait a little while, you know, because it's been a year since I released the book, but it's been six years since I left Netflix. Mm -hmm. And I think HR people had to come around to realizing they got to do something different and just, you know, whining about not having the seat at the table isn't working anymore. So that was really surprising to me. That is really interesting. And Michelle, I'll ask you the same question. You're you, five, six months since you released yours. 
October 16th, 2018, which was also my birthday. And I threw, Yay. I, I, I it's threw, a good birthday party. it was, and, and I threw a book release party in my venue and named a cocktail after myself in the book. So somebody was like, how much self-esteem issues do you have? <laughs> like a lot. How much time, how much time, how much time do you have? Sit down. <laughs> Um, the oh, thing oh, that's a party I wish I did too. <laughs> the thing next book. Yeah. The thing that I um, recognize that people really asked me about is, do you truly want your employees to leave your business? Because in the book, mm-hmm. when I talk about purpose, I mentioned that as a benevolent and as a servant leader, it is your responsibility to get the individual not the employee, the individual human being to help them accomplish their purpose with or without the organization. Mm -hmm. And like I know a gentleman named Riley Cox. He's a bartender. He's a fantastic bartender. He lives within our culture. He uh, lives and breathes our values. He one day wants to go work for a company like 23andMe. That's what he's studying for, and he's close to graduating. It's my responsibility to get him a job with a company like 23andMe, and I want him to leave. And then somebody's like, you know, the audience will be like, well, what about your uh, employee retention numbers? I'm like, okay. I was like, we have to rewire your definition of success. Like if you're trying to protect your employee retention numbers and put your KPIs before somebody else's well-being, that was a shock to some audience members. And I was like, this is the only way I know how to grow a business. And there's been some people to, you know, to piggyback off what Patty said. There's some people that don't like my message, fearful of it. It's different. But so be it. I, I wasn't going to write a book that was just going to get people to, you know, kind of applause quietly. I wanted people to either love it or sit on the fence and say, whatever. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I can Cody, can I rip on that for one second? Uh, you know, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more, Michelle. And you know, I guess you went, one of the things that I say that startles people is a similar message. I say, be a great place to be from. Mm, wow! Right. And what you want, what you want to do is provide people with like resume-worthy experiences, so that when they fulfill whatever their journey is in life that having spent time with you and your business and your company makes them better. And, you know, and I, and I realized that I, when I originally came up with that thought, what I really meant was be a cool, we wanted to be a great place to be from because it would make us sound cool. And then I realized when I really internalized that, that that was our job to be a great place to be from, then like the scale fell from my eyes. Retention didn't matter at all. Absolutely. And there's also an opportunity to keep people or hire, let's call them overqualified people, and then actually lead them properly and have them stay. That's mm-hmm. the flip side of it. And, and you know, this is the sporting side of it is you see a lot of the time, you know, what, what we would call overqualified players going to certain teams because they want to play for a certain coach or they want an opportunity to win and they end up staying mm-hmm. past that one year. You know, the original deal is I'm going to come and play for you for one year. If we don't win the title, I'm going to go and, and you know, my, my value will be boosted because I've been at a good place to come from, like you say, Patty. Uh-huh. And then they re-sign because they love the coach so much. They love the environment. 
That same idea can work in the corporate world. We go and grab someone who, you know, maybe wants to learn some new skills, but otherwise is overqualified and then lead them properly. To that point, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Vancouver Canucks fan to my ever dismay. And that is what happened to the the twins, the, the Sedin brothers. They stayed their entire career, were loved by the community, the, you know, their teammates, the coaches, uh, left money on the table. And in my book, one of the things that I talk about, and perhaps this is different in the tech uh, space, Patty, but in hospitality, I have team members that have left money on the table to work for our culture. And it's not like I'm trying to gouge them by any means. It's like, this is what we can afford to recruit this talent. And the neighboring hospitality company will want to pay a little bit more because they're trying to poach our culture fits. But we have people literally leaving money on the table to come work with me and my partners. And I did the same thing when I worked at a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which I Great company. believe was the godfather of company culture in Canada. They were talking about it early, 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 similar to, to Netflix and, and other great companies as well, too. I left money on the table by by staying with the culture because I had a long-term vision for my career and was going to use 1-800-GOT-JUNK or perhaps Netflix or my hospitality company as a springboard to something else in the near future if I was patient and I served the culture. And and this is how businesses need to be built. Yeah, the other theme, a thread that I hear here is, um, is we're all talking about people owning their careers right? That, uh, that you had a very specific thing. So I guess my perspective is I'm not sure the longevity is something that matters to businesses. I mean, one of the things that you say really nicely is it's about people-centered, customer-centered businesses. And I think as we go through our careers and our lives, those things can change up. Right. So I've, I've certainly done the same thing myself where I've left money on the table because I thought the experience would be right. Uh, every startup in the world in tech is that way. You know, the money's only a promise. I used to interview startup people and say, you know, that a hundred thousand times zero is still zero. <laughs> <laughs> to, to your point, Patty, um, several years ago, I wrote a LinkedIn article that went you know, semi-viral, like tens of thousands of views and, and hundreds of comments. And the title was, Employees Must Take Ownership Over Their Own Development. And the yep. main message was like, look, you have a manager, but that manager also has 10 direct reports, perhaps. The numbers beat them. What the responsibility of the manager and the organization is to do to invest in your purpose and your education is to pave a path for you. But then you as the team member must serve the business, but serve yourself, right? Like, and that's one thing that I hammer home to my employees as well, too, is like, I'm here as your shepherd and to guide you and to break down walls for you. But like, look, Michael Jordan to become Michael Jordan by just shooting a few three throws a day, he shot thousands of them. Beyonce didn't become Beyonce singing one day a week in the church. She was there five days a week, I assume. Um, But it's like, how do we foster this like self-motivation within a culture? And truth be told, Patty, we haven't met in person, but I feel like we have because I used to operate our business as a quote-unquote family. And then I came across the infamous uh slide deck and i was like wait a second 
competitive sports mm-hmm. team. And I have a sports background as well mm-hmm. too, not professional, but depends who you got. Depends how many drinks I've had and who, who I'm talking to. I might say it's professional, but um, it. But I was like, they was like a punch in the face for me, Patty. I was like, that's it. Yeah, because because the purpose isn't everlasting love and dependency. If you're a part of a healthy family, mm-hmm. the other the other time the other place the family metaphor breaks down is like you know not everybody comes from a really happy family. It's not it's not that big that great of a metaphor no for one. other yeah. people. And well, and the the thing that the sports metaphors have helped me do, and it's and it's not always consistent. It's not always it doesn't always translate to every culture, but the idea that you come together as a team to win and back to your message earlier, Cody, in some particular period of time, then I think that helps us all frame around our engagement together. You know, I very often would notice somebody in the company who was particularly unhappy. And when I would unpack and get to the root cause, the issue was, Either A, they had finished what it was we hired them to do and they wanted to do it again, but we didn't need them to because they finished it. <laughs> so, like, I want that opportunity again. Like, we don't have, so, like, we weren't honestly saying, thanks for everything. I think we don't need you anymore. But, but, and so I was in a, I, I was in the audience and the coach of the San Antonio Spurs was there. And it was a very, very sensitive, very touchy feely audience. And one of them said, oh, this must just break your heart to recruit all these talented young men to play for the team. And at the end of the season, you know, you have to say goodbye. <laughs> and he goes, it's professional basketball. <laughs> right. They get it. <laughs> and I'm in the audience thinking, why couldn't we just have those conversations with people? You know? And so we have this, you, you talked about like, what, how are we set up to fail in some ways? We have people coming into the workforce passively assuming that someone else will take care of their career and it's the company that they work for. And then, and then we have businesses to serve, customers to serve, and the timeframes and the alignment of what we all want to do shifts all the time. You know, when I work with a tech startup and, they, and I hear them, I call it the whiff of nostalgia. You know, when people start saying, remember how it used to be? Oh, yeah. And we all knew each other and it was all so great. And I tell people, that's smoke, there's fire. And the answer when people start having that conversation with you is, do you know why things are different now and not like they used to be? Why? Because we're successful. <laughs> if, you, if you are successful, if you win, then things will change. Absolutely. Right? You can't... We all know that all three of us know this. You know how people ask us, how do you keep your culture where you, you don't? You feed it and you nurture it and you pay attention to it, but it never stays the same. No, exactly. And, and that's, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, people like us are putting out these messages and, and it, it is scary and, and, you know, disrupting the field, but it needs these conversations to be had and it needs these conversations to continue. So, you know, once we, once companies have implemented what we're talking about, that's, we've got to move on. Like our ideas have, have got to be what's next and what's next. And, um, yeah, someone needs to do those jobs. And, and I think also just accepting that as human beings, change is scary 
regardless. That always has always been the case. And so how do we foster that and turn that into a positive rather than the negative that it's it's been at the moment? Um, I want to jump into some things because you two have both released incredible videos this week um, talking about company culture and ideas that you have to, to foster them. So I've I've got a couple and I just want to workshop them a little bit more from what you've both put down. So Let's start because this is all implementable stuff for basically any business, small, medium, large, you know, enterprise, whatever we're talking about, whether you're a, a, an accounts payable manager or whether you're a CEO, these are things that you can do. So here's the first one. Let's start with you, uh, Michelle. Start an internal podcast that new employees can listen to before they start. Yeah, it's um, an idea that came to me, um, like most of my ideas, um, come to me and that's usually drinking tequila. Um, and I was thinking, <laughs> how am I able to embrace the team member into our culture in a more unique fashion um, between when we make them the offer and they agree to their first day of onboarding? Because there's that period of time where they have high engagement. They're talking to their spouse or their kids about this new opportunity that they're going to embark uh, on. And I thought, instead of having kind of the lecturer or the trainer talk about the culture on day one within our, our training room, why don't we create an internal private podcast that's animated, engaging, up-tempo, and talk about the culture how was this started? Who are some of the key individuals? How do we define success? And more. So that way you're able to maintain their engagement from the moment that they agree to work with you to day one when they um, are onboarded uh, more formally. So it's I, I try personally, I um, try to uh, create strategies that are extraordinarily thrifty and, and friendly to the bottom line. Uh, that's kind of my first uh, where my mind's at when I'm trying to create these new experiences for team members. Uh, of course, having uh, a nice size budget will come later to uh, develop more comprehensive programs. But how can we leverage something like that, like an internal podcast that costs uh, very little, costs you your time, and I'd rather pay in time than in actual dollars. Um, and this it's something that anybody can do. Yeah. And it's not just for the medium and large size companies, regardless of industry. So that is one thing that kind of came to me and I included in the video. Um, and so far, so good. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. And there are a million guides out there to shoestring a podcast. You know, if you've got an iPhone, that's basically all you need now. So there's really no excuse. And and like you said, you 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 help humanize the company because what happens in a hiring process for a lot of different organizations is you, you only get direct managers. And so you don't actually see the team that you're going to be working with until day one. And so there's opportunities to close that gap, like you said. And when I started in HR, what we used to do to close that gap that you're talking about was we would mail them a pack. Right. And, and so, you know, that was only 10 years ago. And now we've got these opportunities to, to humanize what we used to mail them. And, 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 and you can hear the voices of the people and you can feel the passion in their, in their voice when they're talking about the organization and the, the good things and maybe some things that they, they thought during the interview process that didn't work out, but, you know, they've improved since. And absolutely, I think it's a fantastic idea. Thank you. Patty, yeah, let's, let's move on to you. 
I love this one. And you and I could talk about this for hours. The job of management isn't to control people. It's to build great teams. Yep. Um, You know, and I really, I, I actually turned this into a very specific teachable lesson and I'll do it for you here now because I think it fits in it fits into a lot of the themes of what we're talking about but it's a great way to frame how to recruit better how to manage the people that you have better how to set up having difficult conversations how to look at the future so here's my methodology you imagine your team in six months and they are amazing right It's not better. It's not a smidge more. It's not that we're running faster. It's that this team that I'm working with is amazing. In six months, remember the time frame, right? And what you want to think about first is what would be occurring then that's not occurring now if I had an amazing team? That's the difference, right? I want you to focus on what would be different if this team was amazing. And then I say, make a movie of it, right? And if you're the CEO or you're the head of accounts payable or, you know, you're in the hospital, you're setting up the bar with everybody else, what would it look like? And make that movie of it, right? Or if you're in a business, are there more meetings? Are there less meetings? Are more people just talking to each other about what's going on when it's, while it's going on? Are we waiting till the end of the year? What's occurring differently in six months than is occurring now? Okay. You got that in your head? Now I want you to drop down and go, well, what would people need to know how to do in order to do that in six months? So you might need a team of people that's much more comfortable talking directly with the customer or getting up out of their chair and going and ask somebody in marketing what the hell's going on, right? Instead of waiting. So what do people need to know how to do? A lot of times, the people that you need that you don't have are people who have seen what you're doing at scale, right? So what is that? What does they need to know how to do? Then you drop down and say, okay, what kind of skills and experience would it take for somebody to know how to do that Do that in order to accomplish this so we'd be an amazing team in six months? And then, and only then, who's the team that you have? Because what you're solving for in the recruiting process is someone to help you solve those problems. Some unique way of looking at that problem that you're not looking at it now. And if you advertise for the problem solver instead of another headcount, so I'm a recruiter, right? I know how requisitions get approved. I know what they are, job descriptions. Hmm. They are either describing somebody who left who you wish hadn't gone, a fantasy person that doesn't exist, or whatever it takes to get it approved. Yes, and that and that tends to be how we wrap our recruitment process around it. But if you start with, we have this team, and this is what we want to accomplish, and this is what it's going to look like, and here's a really hard problem we have to solve, then you're going to hire somebody who loves solving that problem and is capable of doing it in that time frame. And it allows you to sit down with the rest of the team and go, hey, by the way, in six months, things around here are going to change a lot. And here's what we need to know how to do. And here's what we need to be great at. And here's what I think we are good at. And here's our gap. And then people can help adjust within their own team. You know, I think I could figure that out. You know, <laughs> I think I could learn that. Or they can come back and go, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that. <laughs> right. Or you can sit down with them and say, 
hey, by the way, if you walk in the door knowing what I know about what we're going to do in the next six months, I might not hire you for this team. You can have those conversations with people. It's, it's just about what you're trying to do. So what I like about the method is not only when you're looking for someone to help you solve your problem, you're much more open to a diverse slate of candidates to help you do it. But if you're looking for more of the people that are the kind of people that you have on this team, then that's who you're going to hire. Do you think the the biggest challenge to that is that most leaders don't know what they're doing? They don't know what no, problem I they're don't. trying to solve? I, I don't think they do. I just don't think they think about the problems that they're trying to solve in terms of how, of what the people on the team need to be like. I think that we're very, very good at um, at objectives and OKRs and measurements and metrics and deliverables and all that kind of stuff in most parts of the business. We just don't measure the way we get people to those end games as well as we could. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we, we reward tenure instead of rewarding accomplishments. Right. Our pay schemes are we're going to pay you next year for the work that you did last year. Like, does that make any sense? (laughs) Right. And like you just said, Michelle, pay is market. And so if your if your business is not able to pay what the next door competitor business is going to pay, because that's market, then you're going to either figure out a way to do it with fewer people so that you can pay them more or make the environment so wonderful that people will opt to choose to work for you. So that that is an example of a strategy around people. This the same strategy you would do if you said, boy, we need to knock. 15% off bottom line expenses in six months. Yeah. Right. You you think it through, right? Like a project. I've learned most of what I do, I realized looking back from product managers. If I thought about uh, the things that I did, the systems that I used to help um, make efficiency around what people get done in the same way as I thought about our product, that I'd be willing to tweak it or stop it or, you know, I, I, uh, I'm often given credit for being this huge HR innovator. And here's the truth. I gave you guys my secret. I didn't invent anything. I just stopped doing stupid stuff. <laughs> but so, but you created some of the frameworks that went viral and was, were worth Think talking about. about. Think about it, though. Think about those frameworks. That's stuff. So, so the Netflix Culture Deck that you referenced is um, was the uh, 2003 version of Michelle's video. Got it. It was an it was onboarding. It was an onboarding document. And how we did it back in the day, to date myself, was Rita and I would take that slide deck and sit in a room with ten people in the first month that they were hired and talk them through it. And, and nowadays, it's you know it's very video centric, and they do a lot of that kind of stuff. But 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 the Netflix culture deck. Here's the other thing about the Netflix culture deck. It took us ten years to write it. Ten years. So we didn't all of a sudden wake up in the morning and go, you know, here's how we want to have our culture. Let's write a hundred and seventy PowerPoint deck. <laughs> you know. Uh, Honestly, it 
it was just that I went, why am I keeping track of people's time? Why don't I just get rid of paid time off? And everybody in the world told me the world as we knew it would end. <laughs> and so I stood up in front of our however many hundreds of employees, literally on a chair. And I said, you know what? This is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> you're, you're all adults. You know, I really don't care when and how you work. I, and I actually want you to have full lives outside of work because you people that work too hard and are here all the time are just weird. So why don't you manage your time at a local level and we'll manage you to what you're accomplishing. And if the world as we know it falls apart, nobody works and the company goes to hell in a handbasket, then we'll just do go back to doing what everybody else does. But honestly, I think you guys are grown up enough to manage your time. And I mean, literally every HR person in the planet said to me, you are out of your mind. So I didn't invent a new way of keeping track of time. I just stopped doing it. So if you look at the foundations, there's just, there's a series of, well, why don't we stop doing that? Why do we do that? Why do I measure? Why do I measure retention? when I'm changing my business from DVD by mail to streaming and I don't need the DVD by mail people anymore, right? So it's unique to everybody's business, but the idea of looking at all of our human, you know, our people practices and saying, why do we do this? What's the purpose of this activity? And is the way we've always done this activity and everybody else does this activity is it actually accomplishing what it set out to do? Well, that's why I called my, my the subheading of my book is, is people innovation. And I was trying to coin a phrase there along those same ideas of, if this was an innovation department, we would look at this problem this way. Uh, mm-hmm. And we never apply that to people. Obviously you have, but um, yeah, it's just something that doesn't seem to go through people's heads to to apply it to that, even though in every other area we're trying to get more agile, we're trying to get this, we're trying to, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, but the, the yeah, the, the dealing with the people who are the company, they never get that same application. And Yeah, and even some of, some of it's just technology. You know, you were just talking about 10 years ago, you sent a packet of paper to people. Right. Well, I can buy a car on my phone now. <laughs> So, like, we got to make sure that the way we're interacting with people, even on a technical level, is is within the, not the future, but the world we live in right now. Couldn't agree more. That's what I think. Yeah. I'm going to move on to the next one. You touched on this a little bit, and this was one of the core messages of my book, and it is one of the things that has scared a lot of people that have read it, and it goes that tenure is a terrible reason to hire or promote someone into leadership. And my idea is that we've just come from a week ago, a Super Bowl, where one of the head coaches was 33 years of age. I think every single person on his coaching staff, so his leadership group, is older than him. And he's been in his job one year or two years and replaced one of the most tenured head coaches in NFL history. And that's just one example, but you can kind of extrapolate that out. And the idea is how do we find leaders earlier and get them into organizations and allow them to lead and use their leadership skills rather than having to, quote unquote, do their time until they're 40 
at which point we thrust them into some sort of leadership role and say, here you go, off to the races. Uh, you know, now you're going to interview. Now you're going to approve timesheets. Now you're, you know, you, we're going to bestow all these things upon you. Uh, you know, I think we need to find ways to, when people are coming into organizations tw- in their 20s, in their 30s, you know, are you marked as a leader or can we do it earlier than that? Can we do it in the, in the schooling system? Can we have leadership be its own schooling practice? And KPMG are clamoring over, you know, the, the guys that come out of Kitchener, Waterloo or from Stanford, the, the top leadership guys. You know, can we get to that point? I, I think the, is it Sean McVeigh? Yeah, Sean yeah. McVeigh. Or Kyle Dubas, uh, the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs, early 30s, I believe, mid-30s. Even Bill Belichick, when he started in Cleveland, he was 34, 35. He was the original youngest. So when I help my management team identify talent, uh, whether it's in hospitality or if I'm advising a company, I don't believe you can hire and increase engagement in every individual. I think you have to hire engaged individuals and maintain their motivation. Those are the individuals that are going to take their careers and take it to the next level on their own. Uh, Those are the individuals that will succeed and break down barriers and go against the norm. Uh, I, I don't think you can coach somebody to achieve that success early on. I found that it's just in people's DNA. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was uh, uh, at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I was talking about things that uh, were manifesting within me like it was five years out. I remember I w- met with a manager and he had asked me some roundabout question like, what do you want to do with your career? And I was like, well, in a few years, I want to start an advisory firm and I want to advise companies like Coca-Cola on company culture, employee engagement and, and customer experience. And he looked at me and pretty much said, keep your dreams realistic. I haven't worked with Coca-Cola, but I've worked with McDonald's Canada, Alfa Romeo, Verizon Wireless. So, but it was just kind of within me. And my mom has worked for Air Canada for 30 years. And my mom is uh, an angel walking on earth. And I asked her, mom, why didn't you grow to become the vice president of your department? stayed in the same role for 30 years. And she said, and I just didn't understand that. And she said, Michelle, not everyone's like you. Not everyone is as ambitious like you. I was happy in my role. Air Canada needed me just as much as I needed them. And I'm happy in this role. And I'm not an overachiever, but I overachieved as a mother and as a wife. That's where I won. And I was like, Oh, she's so right. And I'm so wrong. But my definition of success was just different than hers. So if you're a 33-year-old coach of a team that made the Super Bowl or a 65-year-old coach, it for me, it's just really what's within that person. And I don't think any leader can just get anyone to that level like they going back on our conversation it really has to be within the individual and that's how I help my management teams is like how can you spot that talent early on especially like the majority of my team are like 23 24 year olds right so who's going to become the next general manager of our restaurants or our venues 
So spotting the I'm not going dis- I'm not going to dispute you here, Michelle, but I'm going to disagree a little bit. Uh, first of all, on your mom, um, I, that's a wonderful story. But your mom also, as a woman, probably didn't have the same opportunities that you do as a man starting your own company. So let's just get real about that. Yep, that's being, true. <laughs> being a somewhat older mom, uh, older successful woman, it was a bigger struggle and a bigger fight to maintain both of those things. Also, she didn't get to choose, should I be a mother and a wife and a working person? She had two jobs. Full-time job. True. So there's that. Secondly, I do think that there is people are natural leaders. I think that bringing them out is a great thing to do. I think if you ask almost anybody in the company who's amazing, you know, people kind of know. But there's a couple of things I want us to think and take apart. One of them is people can't be what they can't see. So it's really, really important that when we find the natural leaders and we give them great opportunity and they're incredibly successful, that we expose as many people as we can to that kind of leadership. For example, you know, I, I just said in my video, I had a CEO that I was advising who was complaining to me that nothing was ever done on time and everybody was sloppy and his head of engineering could never accomplish anything. And I said, you do realize you've never come to a meeting on time ever. <laughs> and when and when you are late every single time, by being late, you say in all caps, bold face, underlined, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so some of it is is really actively pointing out and encouraging those behaviors that great leaders exhibit, right? And teaching and saying to people when they're doing it, that's how we get them when they're young. That thing you did when you just stood up and you said, I know the answer to the problem, I'm going to go solve it this afternoon, that's leadership, right? And so we got to call it in the moment. The second thing is that it's really important to look at all of the systems in your organization that either enforce and support what you're trying to do in terms of developing leaders and the ones that don't. So I got called to speak to a very, very large global automobile company. And the CEO called me from Sweden. Maybe you can guess. (laughs) And he was like, you know, we've got to do all this innovation. We've got to do all this stuff. You know, innovation is the theme of our conference. You've got to be the keynote. You've got to talk to him about, you know, moving ahead and being digital and being agile. And, and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be a terrible person. (laughs) I tried to talk him out of it. Um, but I said, so at this conference, is this an annual conference? Yes. How many years have you had it? 52. What is it? Do you give out awards? Do people come up on stage and you, the CEO, hands them an award? Yes, we do. What's the award for? The 50-year dealership? The 40-year dealership? So if you say, you know, what we just talked about, for example, if you give everybody a five-year award, you are now saying tenure matters, right? If you have a bonus system that only pays out at the end of the year and it's a percentage of something because you feel about it and it takes six months to, to administer the bonus program, then you're telling people to wait, right? And so people operate within the systems that they have. So I think it's both. I, I think you have to really call out, pay attention to nurture that the natural leadership 
but also have people have examples. And it doesn't even have to be people at your company, but other examples where you can go, that's what I'm talking about, right? That's being straightforward. That's being honest. So I don't, you know, I think there can be great leaders who've been around for a while and see something they're passionate about. It kind of surprises you sometimes. The other thing is a lot of things that we use to describe leadership. We're talking about extroverts, and that's where I want to get a little, yeah, I get a little twisted about that too. Just to riff on that idea, because I agree with you, we've set up the system so that leadership, essentially in particularly in big organizations, is tied to money, and so. I guess my question is, are people chasing the leadership or are they chasing the extra 10 grand that's going to go into their bank account? And, and you guys might have been set up a little bit differently, Patty, because I know, you know paying software engineers to create the future is a little bit different to you know, working for a, a big bank in Canada. But is, are, we, are we getting the leaders we deserve because it's tied to money? Partly, but I, don't, but, but I, think, it's, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, so I spend a fair amount of time with big banks in Canada these days and in Australia. <laughs> and um, you never come I, to visit. I, I honestly, I I do. I was just <laughs> there last year. Uh, but but what I find is, I mean, and and these executives, they call me. I meet with their executive teams. Man, they get it. And the people that are coming into their organizations that are young and early in their careers, they get it too. So I'm talking to a bank in Australia and I'm with the top seven executives of this bank. And I say, if I had, if I was 27 years old and I had just joined the digital banking team and I was surrounded by really fabulous people and I had a great idea for a mobile application that would make our customers extraordinarily happy, how many people would have to approve it so that I could do something about that? And they're like, oh, I, you know, there's a couple of layers here. And <laughs> one of the people said, it's 30. 30, 30 people would have to, right? And you wouldn't get it till the next budget cycle. Yeah. And the budget cycle is only managed by the top of the company and it's a waterfall system that goes down. And oh, by the way, you know, you, we, didn't, we didn't set out your annual bonus for doing that at the beginning of the year, so why would you do it? That kind of goes well with something that I've been advocating um, to myself and, and to our team is like people don't fail, processes do. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that people don't fail, but it's the mentality that if Joey isn't getting it or Samantha isn't innovating enough, well, let's look at the processes first. Have we... Yeah. Right? Like, have we paved a path for them to actually do the work? Have we handcuffed them? I, I... I just can't tell you how many interventions I do and everybody is everybody is on board and then I say can I see your bonus structure? Yep. Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you a Netflix story. When we first started streaming here in the US, we knew that our com- our competitors would be the big cable companies. In particular, there's one here called Comcast, very big, um, like Rogers when you're in Canada, right? And um, and they have the know-how and they have the money and they have the products, right? There is no reason they couldn't do what we did. No reason at all. And we knew that they were talking about us because we had people who were like, oh, I was over there at their offices and the executives are all wound up about Netflix. But two things stopped them that would ne- they could never overcome. 
They paid bonuses based on goals and objectives that they set in January then for the entire year. And those bonuses were based on what they did the year before. Right? <laughs> so they said the system was set up to perpetuate past success in perpetuity. And all of these men <laughs> were close to retirement. So they weren't going to rock the boat. Are you kidding? Yeah. Half the conversation was they were saving their legacy, right? right? They're saving their legacy, right? And meanwhile, we're like, we just run in the first quarter of the year. Because <laughs> by the time they figured out what we had done, they're too, they're halfway through and they can't do anything about it. Yeah, there's a quote, something something like, show, show me the incentive and I'll show you the behavior. Yeah, and so all I'm, all I'm saying is, you know, all of those things matter. So back to your original point is, I couldn't agree with you more saying, you know, you got to wait till you're 40 before you can be a leader. It's ridiculous. But, but we have to look at the whole, the holistic part of how we're operating to say, wow, maybe we're encouraging behavior that we didn't even realize we were doing. Couldn't agree more. Let's move on, Michelle. Okay. Create an employee advisory board. I love this idea. I um, have zero hospitality experience, and uh, I now have two years. And in that two-year period of time, we've gone from zero in revenue and zero employees to 150 employees and just over $15 million a year in revenue. Pales in comparison. You probably, Patty, you probably think that's a really cute number. Um, but um, it... Uh, <laughs> great number for two years. It is, it is, it is. Um, But I looked at the industry before entering it when my business partners asked me to join. And I was like, where's the pain on the people side? I'm like, employee turnover runs rampant in this industry. I interviewed some employees that my partners had. And uh, some of the common themes were, we don't feel heard. Okay, I've heard that before in, in any industry, really. So I took all this kind of what I call employee intelligence, and I sat down and I said, okay, what am I going to do to combat this pain that our most valuable asset is feeling? And one of the ideas was creating this um, team I called the Employee Advisory Board. And it's one team member is democratically elected by their peers per department. So one dishwasher one hostess, da, 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 da. No department is neglected. And they meet with me for two to four hours once per month for an off-the-record conversation. And I ask them two questions. Uh, what is the current state of our company culture? And describe the workplace of your dreams. And we, we jam for a couple hours. And I'm documenting notes. It's off the record because I want them to speak freely. Uh, it's a great way for one, in the short term, giving them a voice. For me, picking up on things operationally that my GM might not be telling me, and this happens per venue. Um, but the thing that we may neglect as leaders of our company is that we're admired, or I, I would hope we are admired by our team. So what do you think JP is feeling after he sits down with the owner of the company or an executive of the organization 
They go back home and they talk to their spouse or their kids or their girlfriend. They're like, I just got the opportunity to sit down with the owner of the company and express what I feel about the company. And because these are individuals representing their department, and by the way, this is the closest thing I'll ever get to a union. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they're like, I'm a, an ambassador. I'm a leader. Like, let's not neglect the positions that we hold as servant and benevolent leaders. We, we sh you know, we, our word means something to our team members and inspires them. So we take all this feedback and then I go and I chat with my management team. I said, hey, here's the good. This is what we're doing well. Let's do more of this. And and here's the constructive. Can you speak to this? And at times our management team will be like, uh, the reason that they might be giving constructive feedback on this is because we're doing this behind the scenes and it makes sense. And I'll be like, okay, that makes sense. But I'm still, they don't understand that. So I'm going to go back and communicate it to them so that they're able to connect the dots um, on their own mm -hmm. and share this uh, feedback with their peers. But then there's times where our management team will be like, you know what? They're actually right. We should fix this. And then I host the next meeting and close the loop. We talk about the, the feedback from the month before. And uh, then we go on with uh, new feedback. And this is a way for me to continuously ensure that we're refining our culture. Uh, I was asked when I was keynoting an event not too long ago. Um, somebody says, when does company culture like end? I was like, excuse me <laughs> and um and essentially he's like well we launched this campaign and i'm like that's your problem culture isn't a campaign right by by you not continuously refining your company culture you're assuming that employee behavior will end or sorry employee um behavior and expectations won't evolve employee behaviors and expectations are always evolving. So the culture must evolve with it as well too. I'm not saying completely change, but evolve and get better and, and embrace new team members. And, and the employee advisory board gives us the opportunity to do that. Now, do we action every thing that our employee advisory board recommends? No, because I'm like, you know, that's awesome, but it's also going to cost us $1.2 million. What can we do that's a little more thrifty? Uh, and then we give them the ability to take ownership over helping the operation. And But it's a dialogue. It, absolutely. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue uh, it's, with action. And It's such a good idea, Michelle. It's such a great idea. And, you know, the other thing I bet that you get out of it, which is um, maybe a wonderful unintended consequence, is that they're learning from each other what's important to the other team member, right? And I mean, imagine not only are they not going to, not only are they, and they absolutely will go home and tell their pets and their spouses that they got <laughs> to talk to you. And, and, oh, by the way, leaders, I, I always tell people shit rolls uphill. You know, everybody is imprinting on everything you do. So if you act with, in, you know, if you say we act with integrity, but you have somebody on the management team that gossips, you don't. So, but, but they are also coming back and going, you know what I heard from the dishwasher today? <laughs> those guys really, right? Those guys really see things differently than we do. We we ought to have more conversations with them. 
I'm so happy you mentioned <laughs> right? that, Patty. And and I wish you were in studio because I just pumped my fist because um, that yeah. is like I've sat in a meeting and Alyssa, the server, uh, will turn to uh, Matt, the bartender, and be like, I didn't know you guys went through that. That's why. Exactly. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, I, and I'm, it's so, it's yeah. So, and, the, and the other thing you said that's really important too. So I, I have to tell you the story of this very wonderful startup that I coached. They're quite a successful company now, but this is maybe five, six years ago. And they had these um, very young, inexperienced, terrifically uh, motivated and excited HR team. And so I said, okay. I'm here, what, what can I help you with today? And one of them said, well, uh, we wanna talk about a global HR initiative that we are going to implement as a result from our employee engagement survey. And I said, really, uh, did you, where'd you get the survey? We bought it off the shelf. It was the most expensive one we could afford. So we think it's really good. And I said, did you do it anonymously? Yes, we did. And I said, you know that when you do anonymous surveys asking people for input, you're teaching them that the only way they can be honest is anonymously, <laughs> right? So they can't complain. And I said, and, and tell me, did John complain about the fact that you took away the probiotic drinks out of the fridge? <laughs> <laughs> she goes, well, we don't know it was him. I'm like, I know it was him. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I address the whole company, he complains to me about it. And I wonder why, if you had just sat in the room, you could say to John, no, we're not ever bringing them back. <laughs> so you just gave a great example of how you can say, wow, that, that is an interesting idea. But, you know, we don't got a million bucks. We were kind of thinking we'd hire some new people with that kind of money. Would you guys rather have that or, you know? And so you're teaching them. The other wonderful advice I have for you in this is at, use every one of those wonderful teachable moments to teach them how the business makes money. I, if I were the queen of the forest, the only training I would mandate in my company is how to read a profit and loss statement. Absolutely. And it's one thing that we we uh, host you know, nothing revolutionary learning development sessions with our team. And uh, every quarter we just ask them, what is it that you guys want to learn about? And we've done things like mm -hmm. some of our team members are like, I want to learn how to properly cook at home. So can you teach us knife skills? Well, we got a whole crap of uh, a whole ton of cooks that know <laughs> yeah. how to cut yeah. crap. <laughs> so, yeah, let's do that. But then one time Alyssa was like, what's a P&L? She had heard us talking about it. I was like, this is what it is. She's like, let's learn how to read that. And I was like, this yeah, is yeah. brilliant. So we did. And does everybody yeah. attend? No. And that's not the point of having these initiatives. It, you're never going to have 100% adoption. You invite 100% of the population, but not everybody's going to show up. And that's well, fine. The thing, about, but the thing about when people understand where they are in the system then they can become over time, particularly your smart people and your leaders, they're going to be able to recognize, for example, I would suspect in your business, repeat engagement is the key to success, right? So in this same particular company, I'm like, what we want the customer service people to do is not get mad at the end of the day because all they have to do is talk to angry customers. We want them to understand that to acquire a new customer costs $17.47 in marketing spend. 
And if that customer that they talk to hangs up and says, those guys are great. I'm going to tell my mom to use them. You just put $17.47 on the bottom line. Absolutely. And and we talk about organic growth a lot. And um, mm-hmm. speaking of the P&L too, is like P&L your life. Like PNL, your personal life. Like yeah. you see all these GL, yeah, yeah, co- yeah, yeah. you see all these GL codes and all that stuff. Like we'll teach you what that is, but you know, strip it down a little bit and PNL your life. And some of our team members have taken that, and it's it's fantastic. It's a great thing to watch, and it flows through an entire yeah. organization too. If everyone understands what cog they are. You know, going back, I think I used accounts payable before, but you know, the cost of not uh-huh. sending that invoice or not making that call to that, you know, creditor, debitor, whatever it is, uh-huh. what is the cost of that? And what is the cost to the uh, to the account management team uh-huh. of losing a client completely? Yes, so, you and, and you've just you just unearthed something else I think is really important, this weird hierarchy of goodness that the people in accounts payable are doing lesser jobs than uh, somebody else, right? Yeah. I, I, I had a startup CEO said to me, he goes, you know, when you talk about having like a really great person in every job, you don't mean every job. <laughs> yes, I, I actually do, but <laughs> tell me what they're talking about. And he goes, he goes, well, there's just some jobs in the company that you just don't really, you actually don't want a smart person in. And I said, Really? In your company, which job would you prefer not to have a smart person in? He said, oh, you know, like like payroll. <laughs> you don't want a smart person figuring out how to pay people? And I said to him, I said, you know your finance organization hates you. He goes, you've never been to my company. You don't know anybody in my organization. I'm like, you just told me you think they're stupid. I don't, I'm a stranger. <laughs> they know what you think about them. Uh, yeah, and right, and so that was that was coded. That was just such a wonderful thing. That and and what you're doing too, Michelle, is saying we're on the same team. All of our jobs matter. All of them. Right. It won't matter if it's the coolest drink in town if it's in the dirty glass. Wow, you're full <laughs> of sound bites, eh? I gotta be trademarking these. I'm looking at my marketer right now, saying, "Write this shit down and run to our uh, our lawyer's office and create T-shirts before you know it." I'm gonna have a website, pattysaidthis.com, and you can buy my shirts. I'll give you a profit, ten percent. Producer Adam, he's gonna spend yeah, one hour editing the show, yeah, yeah. and he's gonna have to cut up the rest. It's gonna take him four hours to cut up all the social media bites from Patty. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Somebody commented on my video today and said um, uh, she's not like the other cheesy snake oil salesman. And I commented on it. I'm like, I'm going to change my title to not a cheesy snake oil salesman. <laughs> Run with it. But, you know, what I think what I think that we've talked about today that's really interesting, and I love that the three of us, it's so naturally intertwined because the other thing I guess I get sometimes is how do I fix it? Right. And, and they want this soundbite. They want, and then, and what we're talking about is it's a holistic system of saying, you know, teams come together to win. We win, you know, customers or fans or whoever it is. And that if we don't operate, if we don't have the best teams and we don't respect each other and we don't have the courage to talk to each other about what we could do better, then you know, then it's going to be a miserable place to work and you're not going to get as much done. 
And so it's not, my perspective is not so that people feel better. They'll get more stuff done. Yeah. It's just true. So let's riff on this last idea because you've just touched on something that I wanted to bring up from your video was this idea of everyone in your company should be able to handle the truth. And we've talked about it a little bit here, but you, you raise a really good point, Patty, in that we don't practice that stuff. So you're mm-hmm. specifically talking about the annual performance review, which you know has been a, something that you've been talking about for a long time and essentially discussing how much you hate it how much you hate, how much you hate it and <laughs> yeah. why we do yeah. it and but the, the more poignant point that you make is what in the rest of your life are you good at that you do once a year and mm-hmm. you know this kind of idea that we've just been talking about about everyone understanding their role within a team and, and that can be a team of 10 people it can be a, a team of 10,000 people but when, when once they understand their role and and how, like we talked about, losing a customer impacts their role and impacts the profit and loss. They're going to be able to handle the truth a lot better. And we can have tougher conversations with them a lot easier and we can have them more regularly. And they can receive those, those tough conversations from other people on their team. It doesn't need to be their direct manager because now everyone's being truthful about the position of the company and about their particular position and uh, you know, I think we, we we really need to move closer to that rather than what we've done over the last couple of decades, which is hide the books, not talk to anyone until, you know, once a year. So, you know, once every January when the new bonuses are coming out, like you talked about. And apart from that, it, it, it's essentially nothing. So no wonder people are lost in their jobs and then probably in their lives as well, because, you know, we, we haven't told them the truth, and we haven't practiced. Yeah, and it's not, they're not just lost, they're, they feel done to. And so you have this, you know, companies full of victims instead of people who are on board wanting to see success, right? Here, here's what I've been thinking. I mean, this, I mean, I didn't articulate this as well when I was in the role, but we've come to believe that feedback means uh constructive criticism means telling people something mean in a nice way so we don't hurt their feelings which is when you put it all together it's just like that didn't make any sense at all and we forget that we actually know uh and and oh by the way that kind of feedback it takes a long time it's you know it's called guilt tripping right uh we all know about how to do that you know Cody, you're you're a really great guy, and I love doing these podcasts with you. But boy, sometimes you really got, I mean, you could do obviously a lot better because you're really pissing everybody off. But you know, remember that I really love yeah, you. the feedback sandwich, positive, it's, negative, you know, positive the feedback sandwich, or or the ones I used to say to managers and it'd be like, I've had it with her. I told her one more time, she does it. She's out of here. I'm like, wait, you wait right here. I'm gonna go ask her how she's doing. <laughs> oh well, that was I told her that at our last one on one. I said, was that in March? of last year (laughs) okay so so that's so that's one thing one thing two is there's a a kind of feedback that we totally forget to use that's extraordinarily effective and it's here's the secret catch people doing something right and tell them in the moment when they're doing it right hey you you stood up here in this meeting 
and you expressed an opinion and you took a stand and you made a suggestion for how to fix it, that's what I'm talking about. Because you have just gone from a problem finder to a problem solver. Right? It doesn't help when you just stand up and point out problems. It's really helpful when you stand up and solve them like you just did. And you know when you tell that person that, especially in front of other people, they're going to go do that again today. It feels good, right? But con conversely, I can say, okay, the meeting's about to end here, Michelle, and um, you didn't say anything. We've been discussing this issue for two hours. But you've been spending the last three months telling me what a bad idea you think it is. Did we change your mind? Right? Or do you want to share with the rest of the table what you've shared with me? Because your perspective is not being heard because you haven't spoken. And you can say that to somebody in a meeting. You can go to a meeting and notice that there's 10 people there that don't ever speak. I personally think that's a sign of a good email. Hmm. <laughs> right? Um, because what, what's the purpose of getting in a room together if everybody, to your point, if everybody's not heard or contributed? And so it's both. For me, it's both. It's not just being heard. It's speaking up. And, and that's back to my point about leadership. People can't be what they can't see. So when they see you and I arguing about, because we just have different perspectives on something, but everybody knows that we're arguing on behalf of our customer experience, then actually the debate is, is fun and healthy. And I'm not putting you down. I'm going, well, how do you think, how, what makes you believe you're right? <laughs> how would we measure that? How would that be true? And I think that when people get those skills, and it's a skill, you can practice and you can get better at it, I know. I mean, my sound bites. People say to me, how can you give people, you're so good at giving terrible, feed, terrible feedback, harsh feedback. I'm like, it's not harsh. I'm doing it to make us better. And when people know that you're coming from that place, yeah. Yeah, it's the framework that it's in, right? And 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 everyone, every company has transparency and honesty plastered in their foyer <laughs> as their values. Yeah. But then when you have to yeah. actually act upon it, it's not nowhere to be yeah. seen. And and that's the thing is, you know, everyone has all these values and these keywords and everything. And if you tie that feedback back to it, we're having this discussion under the value of transparency. I'm telling you that you didn't speak up in that last, you know, whatever, wherever the conversation goes, positive, negative, we need to fix this. If you can address it yeah. and, I, I, you know, there's a company here called X Movement that was founded by one of my good friends and, and they even have language for how to deliver that. And so you start with the same sentence every single time. I saw what you did there. Huh? I saw you take, take action. And then you can go uh -huh. in one of two ways, positive or negative. That's not yeah. the way we do it here. Yeah, yeah. Or... That was a, a great example of our corporate value transparency. I, I, a test that I give to I, a test that I give people around values in particular is, um, and, and an exercise that I recommend to people around values is okay. Right, bring bring that truth and integrity document or T-shirt or plaque or whatever it is, and put it in the middle of the table, and then lightning round, go around and go uh, honesty and transparency, Michelle. Give me an example of somebody on your team that's done that this week or not. And what were the consequences, right? And then you just run through them. And if you're stumbling, then that's not a real value. Values 
are just words, behaviors are what back them up. Absolutely. I, I too don't believe in the yearly performance review. I do something I was taught called GSNR, goal setting and review. It's actually a weekly meeting. So each one of my direct reports will meet with me on a given day at a given time. It's never canceled. Um, even if I'm traveling, we, I still dial in. Um, and, you know, I am tough on standards, but soft on people. Um, I won't berate somebody like Gordon Ramsay might. And like I haven't built this team who are used to that. So I've had to rewire them in terms of how they receive feedback and how they give it. Um, but mm -hmm. standards, I won't bend on that. Um, and I'm going to tell you in a very black and white, like using black and white language, that whether I am thrilled with your performance in real time, if for whatever reason I can't deliver that message to you face to face, because I always try to, um, or I'm, I'm caught up in something, I'll always do something as simple as this. I pull up my phone, pull out the note section and say, Joey, this date did X. And I'll always circle back. Um, because like, do you know how many notes you'd be taking if you did a yearly performance review? And we're like, okay, Joey, on Tuesday, March the 3rd, I saw you do this, right? Like, come on, that's mm -hmm. not, that makes no sense. Um, and I, I want my team members, and I mentioned in the book, is I want them to feel safe. And what I mean by that is I want them to feel safe to give me feedback about my organization or about my performance and not be worried to have a, a conversation that might upset me. I, I'm okay with, with that. And I want the team to be able to feel that way. And I want to be able to do the exact same way and, I'm, uh, and have the exact same dialogue with them. And I'm not really concerned with like, are they going to be upset as long yeah. as they just so heard they the message. They, so they can model that on you. And then, you know, when you are twice as successful and you've got twice as much revenue and everything's going great, then what you want to make sure, it might become less important that you have those weekly touch points. That's your heartbeat of communication right now. But it's absolutely going to be important that it falls down in the organization. Absolutely. Right? So your, ne your next success is that you know that Everybody else who's on your executive team is doing that too and doing that too and doing that too. And, uh, you know, um, what I've found is that whatever it is you're doing, for whatever reason, maybe twice a year stop and say, is this still the right rhythm? Is, what is it that's working about this? How do I continue this? How do I scale this? You know, when we were talking earlier about your great idea about the videos, the, the onboarding introduction video, Netflix now has a, a thing uh, on Twitter, I think that's called We Are Netflix. And it's just these stories of people that work there. <laughs> you know, here's what I hear. I'm a cloud services engineer and here's what I do and here's what I think about and here's how we operate and here's what I like working there. Um, and what's beautiful about that is it can scale globally. They can change it to 15 different languages. And I didn't do any of that stuff when I was there because it wasn't, it was a different company when I was there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another important message for us as leaders is to stop and take stock. For example, in the annual performance review discussion that I hate, I don't have any problem with stopping and looking at compensation once a year. I think it's pretty smart. But if the compensation is tied to performance and performance is backward looking and, you know, 
I just think the whole system can be rewired or rethought. So that's, that's the advice I guess I would leave you with, Michelle, is, you know, you've already accomplished so many great things. It's just that continuous way of doing it. And then sometimes feeding the great idea that somebody four levels below you has says, you just run with that. Let us know how it goes. Because they come up with great stuff. <laughs> they do the work, right? Absolutely. I don't, like, my customers don't know who I am. Right. Like, so why Uh is it, why am I put on a pedestal as a leader? Like I just, I want to be benevolent and I want to be a servant and it's the best ideas come from my front lines. Like if, if Samantha's gone for a week, our customer, our best customers will know she's not there. Nobody knows who I am Uh and I'll keep it. I'm happy to keep it that way. You you raised a really good point there as well that I think is valuable for a lot of, you know, middle managers is a lot of the time they adopt their teams. They they inherit these teams and, Uh you know, you you have to go through this transformation process like you were talking about of of teaching them how you want them to, to talk to you and you don't just get to build your own team and, you know, Patty, I'm sure you've had circumstances where you've been building unique teams and you could kind of grab them from day one. But for most of us, it's, that's not the reality. You walk into this, this new senior director role and you just get the people that are there. And so, you know, we talk about coaching a lot and I wrote this in, in, in my book is that word comes from stage coach and the stage coach was designed to take someone from A to B. And so actually coaching them is, is that is, you know, how can I help you in, in the easiest way possible, get from A to B. And like you said, is, you know, you've got to, you've got to actually embody the behavior before they can. And, and I don't think a lot of managers do that. They expect instant results and that instant gratification, um, which, you know, yeah, we can change. We can actually be that, that behavior. Uh, all right, we'll do a final promo. So, Paddy, where can people find your amazing work, your book, everything that you're doing now, and your new video that just came out this week? Well, I have a pretty nifty website called www.pattymccord.com, <laughs> and it's all there. So that's probably the easiest way to find me and all the other stuff. And you, Michelle? Um, at Michelle Falcon. Uh, that's the easiest way, or michellefalcon.com. My parents blessed and cursed me with my name. It's not Michael Falcon. It's Michelle Falcon. So just put that into Google and explore. The book is on Amazon, People First Culture. It's a damn sweet name, man. I love it. And I I have this magical website called codyroyal.com, so people can find me there as well. Uh, this has been awesome, guys. I think we should definitely revisit this at some stage down the line as well. Uh, thank you for coming on. I know it came together pretty quickly, but this has been incredible. And, and we talked about adding as much value as we could. And I think in 65, 70 minutes, we've delivered on that. So thank you, you guys. And uh, looking yep. forward to, to catching up again. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Patty. Yeah, nice to meet you, Michelle. Have a great rest of your day. You too. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave them a five-star rating but I'd rather you go and check out Leaders in Sport. I've got an exclusive offer for you to claim one of 100 free trials of their online membership with unlimited access for a month. The Leaders Performance Institute gives you members-only access to their entire catalogue of content, which includes contributions from many of the guests you've heard on this podcast. As a member, 
you'll get full access to daily articles, deep dive performance reports, industry trends, and event videos. Plus, I'll be writing a monthly column throughout 2019. There's only 100 free trials, so jump on this now before they run out. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash Cody to claim your free membership for the month. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.